Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Greetings, listeners. It's the June episode of Radio Astronomy from the creators of BBC Sky at Night magazine. I'm news editor Elizabeth Pearson. I'm joined in the studio today by editor Chris Bramley. Hello. And production editor Neil McKim. Hello. Coming up later in the episode, we'll be talking to Sarah Crowther from the University of Manchester about asteroids. And we'll let you know our top stargazing tip for this month's night sky. But now we're going to take a look back at what we found whilst we were putting together the June issue of the magazine. So, Neil, it's your first time on the podcast. So why don't you go first? Okay, thanks. Um, (laughs) Yeah, well, I've been looking through the magazine's news pages this month. um, And we've covered the world's first image of the supermassive black hole, which is an extraordinary story. Um, It's hit headlines across the globe. And you can hear all about that in last month's podcast. Yes, we did uh, talk at length about that, didn't we? It was pretty exciting stuff when it when it came out. Other big news this month includes Insight's discovery of a Mars quake. Um, the seismic event was detected by the Martian lander, which has been on the surface since last December. Insight's seismometer, or SIZE, which stands for Seismic Experiment for Interior Structure, made the discovery on the 6th of April. Interestingly, the signals are much less than those that would be detected on Earth because Mars has less background noise anyway. There's no oceans, trees or people making a nuisance of themselves. Mm. There's no like radio waves or anything like that there, are there? So, um, no. Yeah, there's much less uh, sound pollution. There's no trains going past, which I think is another one that tends to oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. mess yeah. people up. Yeah. Yeah. And... What's exciting about the findings is that they emulate the moonquakes that were detected by the Apollo missions, Mm. um, taken from seismometers on the lunar surface. Mars and the moon don't have tectonic plates like Earth, so it's Mm. believed the seismic activity is caused by a continual process of cooling and contraction that creates stress. Yeah, so this thing is, Mars is gradually just shrinking, just under it, under its own steam, basically. Mm, it's the, in, in its own time. I think it's the the sort of residual of heat from formation gets kind of locked up in the middle. Yeah. And over time, that kind of fades away. It's kind of like a um, one of those kind of um, animation, you know, animations. Those sped up in animations of a <laughs> of a fruit gradually shriveling up. <laughs> and as it yeah. happens, the surface kind of gets all shriveled up. Yeah, exactly, but it's, yeah. unfortunately, the Mars isn't, you know, like with a nice soft fruit skin. So it no. tends to crack and yeah, that's right. yeah, slide yeah. and fall apart and cover all these Mars quakes. Yeah. Um, and the Insight team is hoping to explain the mystery of how Mars has evolved uh, from a wet planet with riverbeds to become today's dead red planet. Yeah, it's it's fascinating stuff, though, isn't it? I think it, it's it just and it just um, shows how uh, unique uh, our planet is, Earth. That mm-hmm. it has this kind of uh, you know this kind of molten center that, and we're all floating basically on on the on the on the crust on the mantle, aren't we? On molten rock, <laughs> yeah, yeah, gradually moving slowly around around the planet. It's a unique. Um, set of affairs in the in the. There's in there's a lot of things about Earth system. which are which Amazing. are unique and yeah. help us have lots of life here on the surface. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, that's thanks, Neil. That's really okay. good. Um, 
And another story that caught my eye is um, the discovery of a giant solar flare that's coming from a star that's estimated to be equivalent to 80 billion megatons of TNT. That's what? a lot. Yeah. Because th- th- I'm pretty sure 15 megatons is, are, is the, the bomb that they dropped on Hiroshima. And yeah. that's, that's 18 billion, you said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I've, I've done some looking into this, and actually you mentioned that bomb. Um, the atom bomb that's dropped on Hiroshima was 15 kilotons of TNT. And how so much this, was, was this eruption? This wow. is <laughs> 80 billion megatons. So that works out as 0.015 megatons, making the flare 5.3 trillion times more powerful. What? <laughs> Oh my word, that's crazy! Can you imagine if you were no, that's yeah. uh, on planet Earth or something on a planet around that with an with an atmosphere like ours? Do you imagine the aurora you'd see then? Yeah, that would just be immense. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well, when yeah. the the flare hits yeah, the, yeah, hits the yeah, planet, yeah. that would be incredible. Yeah. If you survived, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That you would. That's that's the biggest. Um, and there's a few other comparisons. Um, if you add up the entire amount of explosives used in World War II, including both atomic bombs, t- the TNT is estimated at just three megatons, mm. and all the nuclear warheads in the world today are just 1,460 megatons. Oh, my word. Um, and then even a colossal um, natural event like the 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake comes yeah. to 956,000 megatons. Wow. Mm. So it's not even close. Though. Not even close. Yeah. And the Chilabub impact, which caused mass extinction on Earth mm. 65 mm. million years ago, clocks in at 100 million. So still not wow. even close. Oh, my word. Yeah. That's crazy. So we need to find out pretty quickly what, why that star is erupting mm. at, you know, that strongly and uh, put those results, run those results past our, uh, the sun. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, just have a quiet well, word with the sun and say, "Look, you're not going to do that anytime soon." Yeah, because if yeah. I remember rightly about this story, wasn't it? It was also really unusual because the star was so small. It was a yeah. it was a red dwarf, yeah. which is one of what? the 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 smallest stars you can get. Yes, um, but isn't the red dwarf at the end later stages of its life? So. No, that's a white dwarf. Oh, white red red dwarfs yes. are the ones that start very small and stay oh, yes, very small no, yes, and just okay. live for yeah. trillions and trillions and so trillions of years. So it's not even that. It's in, in it. A star in old age throwing off its outer atmosphere. No, it's like just... That. It's just an, un, an unknown star. Yeah. Yeah. It's also one of the most common types of stars in the, the, the universe, so this could be happening all over the place. Yes. Mm. Uh, luckily, though, our, our sun isn't, isn't a red dwarf, is it? No, our sun is a, a sun-like star, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I believe yeah. is the technical term. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The sun being one. Uh, yes, and it's Indeed. apparently it's ten times more powerful than anything that's ever been produced by our sun. So yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? That's good to know. Yeah, yeah, really <laughs> sure. that we're not going to have yeah. one of these going off in our face yeah. sometime soon. Yeah. But yeah. yes, I just wonder if it's um, if it's nearby. If we're we're going to feel the effect. If it's a red dwarf, it has to be relatively nearby mm. because otherwise you wouldn't see it. But I yeah. think the only reason we saw it was because this massive flare went well, off yeah, and made it, it really bright. Um. Millions of times the brightness. Wow, that's, that's a, a truly amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll wait and see if what we hear back from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, moving a little bit closer to home, um, I've been looking at uh, our own solar system uh, this month. 
um, which is ahead of Brian Cox's new uh, TV show that he's got coming up at some point in the next couple of months on The Planets. Uh, And so I was looking at some of the mysteries that we see, the biggest mysteries that we still have around our solar system. Because a lot of people, when you think of the solar system, it's the bit of space we've explored the most. It's Mm. it's the one that people learn about in school. Um, But Mm. there's still a lot about our planets that we don't know. Mm. Um, Mm. For instance, uh, Mercury has an incredibly big heart. Mm. Um, it's it's very heavy. It's got this massive iron core that takes up something like 85% of its diameter, mm. um, which is absolutely massive. And no one's really sure why it's got this massive iron core. Um, yeah. A lot of people think it was maybe the outer layers got knocked off or maybe it was so close to the sun they got boiled away. Mm. Um, but that's one of those big questions that a lot of people are still trying to find out the answers to. Yeah. Will they, I don't know, how would you find that out? It's, it's a weird thing to do mm. a bit of um, planetary planetary archaeology, isn't it? Like, I, th- I think it's generally speaking, they do lots of simulations in computers and work out which one fits the best. Combined with a lot of um, observations from, mm. from our spacecraft around the planet. Mm, mm. Though Mercury hasn't actually been visited a lot. Is there a theory that it was somewhere else in the solar system? Is that... One of the theories. So, uh, pro- yeah, probably that did happen at some point. A, a lot of the planets, um, we think anyway, must have started in other orbits and then had to get moved about. Um, shuffled around a bit. Just yeah. because we can't really explain. Um, when you when you look at a planet, the temperature of where it is isn't the right temperature for it to be the kind of planet it is. So, for instance, mm. the Earth shouldn't have water on it because if you've got a a planet that's hot enough for it to be a molten rock, then it's too hot for water to exist and it should have all boiled away. And that's, again, that's another one of those big mysteries that we have. Um, And so it's probably very early in the solar system's history, sort of about a few hundred thousand years after it formed. Um, Everything did a bit of a shuffle. Mm. Um, (laughs) Maybe the outer planets moved in, the terrestrial planets moved in, something's moved out and some... We possibly even lost a couple of planets along the way as they got thrown out of the solar system. Yeah, they're um, they're orbiting in the inky blackness of the um, Kuiper Belt. Yes. Yeah, um, at the very edge of the solar system. Yes. Maybe one of them is Planet Nine. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, we've still got a couple of the sort of remnants of that early time around in the forms of uh, comets and asteroids. Mm, mm. Yeah. So um, I've I've enjoyed really enjoyed um, reading the. The feature we've got in the um, in the issue on on asteroids, and it's it's tying with Asteroid Day, which is at the end of June, um, and it, it was a very it's a very it's quite interesting. It, we, it's it's looking at um, asteroid one asteroid in particular called um, Apophis or Apophis, uh, named after an Egyptian god, um, and Apophis is is an interesting one because. Um, when it was first discovered, uh, it's it was um, astronomers got a little bit worried because it, they discovered it was um, very the, ch- the chances of impact looked very high. Um, this is this is a scale that people um, uh, people in the business rate asteroid the the danger of asteroid impacts on called the Torino scale, and I think it came to a it came to a four on the Torino scale and ten. Is a, a you know a kind of cataclysmic mm. civilizational collapse type impact. 
four is pretty pretty damaging. Um, and then within a week, it had gone back down to um, zero again. <laughs> so uh, it, it's and it and we 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 use that as a kind of as a starting point and, and just ask why was why is there that kind of that much doubt? Why is there that why was there the need to kind of get people so worried to start off with and then kind of say oh never mind it was just you know it's just a false alarm kind of thing um why couldn't they just kind of hold off and it's very interesting what turns out is that um asteroid asteroid positions and orbits aren't, aren't, aren't fixed things it's they're constantly evolving they're constantly changing as they evolve as they interact with all the other bodies in the solar system um and, it, and so it's a very dynamic uh, it's a very dynamic kind of um, set of affairs, you know, and the yeah. risk assessment is always changing. So, yeah. um, with a with Apophis, um, uh, the next the next pass um, is it, it is in twenty twenty nine when it's actually um, going to come um, just thirty one thousand kilometers um, uh, from the surface of of, of Earth. Uh, and That's actually, close. It'll actually be um, visible to the mm. naked eye, though, if you know where to look. Um, and that kind of event happens once in a thousand years. Wow! Um, and and the next pass after that in 2068 um, is they won't know. They don't really know how close that's going to get until the 2029 one happens. <laughs> so they, they and there's still an element of worry about this toy, about this 2068. Yeah, because I know that one of the big problems that they have is when you know, these asteroids get close to Earth. Um, it changes their trajectory a bit because yeah. the gravity of Earth pulls them off course. Yeah. And it's yeah. kind of, if something's pulling it off course, it's a lot harder to predict where it's going to be. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, um, you know, just one of the um, 20, 000, over 20,000 asteroids that we uh, we know of and are tracking at the moment. Um, and that 20,000 is, is a minuscule slice of the millions of uh, lumps of rock that are out there. One of the things that really surprised me about this whole thing is how open they are about everything because all of the sort of the the, the reason why everybody was sort of like, well, why did you announce that it was 1 in 37 mm, when mm. the chance was going to go straight down again? And it was because they announced them all. Um, yeah. And they, they also did uh, a recently at the Planetary Defence Conference, they did a sort of trial run of what they would do if they discovered that there was this... Um, asteroid heading towards Earth, uh, which they live-tweeted on like, like Twitter. Like a practice kind of thing. Yes, like a practice, which they live-tweeted, yeah. which I thought was a brave move. Um, but <laughs> yeah. They had to have a big stamp saying, uh, you this know, is fake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> this isn't real. But, but it was it because was like whenever you see these disaster movies, it's always kept terribly secret and nobody knows about it until the last minute. But mm. actually, in reality, it's as soon as they see something, the entire world knows. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But I suppose that's half of the uh, openness of science. Well, I guess that's it, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And is, isn't one yeah. of the defence mechanisms firing a nuclear warhead at the... It's one of the options. Rocks. That's um, Bruce Willis's favourite <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. option. It's, yeah. Yes. Uh, the the <laughs> idea of that one is because you don't... You can't destroy the asteroid because even if you blow it to, to smithereens, mm. all those pieces are still going to be heading towards Earth and they're still going to hit us. <laughs> so um, one, big, one big impact you get. Lots of little of ones. ones, yeah. yeah. Um, so the, the idea with the, the nuclear bomb is that you set a bomb off on one side um, to just mm. knock it off course or slow it down enough so that it doesn't 
Mm. It misses oh, basically. Right. Okay. Um, and there, there was the um, uh, the Hayabusa mission recently fired mm. a traje- trajectory into an asteroid, didn't it? Yes. And there's another one coming up, um, the Dart mission, mm-hmm. which is doing, which is going to fire a bigger, a bigger projectile yeah. um, at, at an asteroid and, and analyze what happens. Yeah. Uh, Hayabusa's goal was more to bring up a bunch of dust that yes. it could then investigate whereas yeah. um the 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 NASA mission dart yeah. with it's actual its goal is to try and sort of see if we did need to redirect an asteroid yeah. can we do that can we do that in order to learn a bit more about asteroids uh, earlier this month our staff writer Ian Todd caught up with Sarah Crowther from the University of Manchester uh, to talk a little bit more about asteroids and her work with them why do we study space rocks? What do we what do we get out of actually analysing space rocks? Well, we can learn a lot about the origins of the and evolution of the solar system through analysing meteorites and other extraterrestrial materials. You know, what kind of materials did the solar system form from? How have they changed to the types of materials we see on Earth today? And Earth, Earth's great starting point. It's the planet we live on. It's the planet we know the most about. But Earth is geologically active. We have volcanoes, earthquakes, we have the weather, and all these things have overwritten the geological record from when the Earth first formed four and a half billion years ago. But some of the meteorites we analyse, for example, come from asteroids that were made from the same stuff as the Earth was made from, but they haven't changed in four and a half billion years. So they contain a record of the material that the solar system was made from. So do the meteorites that fall fall to Earth, do they come from a specific place in the solar system or do they come from different bodies? The vast majority of the meteorites we have come from asteroids, from the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, but they come from a variety of different asteroids. We also have a few hundred meteorites from the Moon and a few hundred meteorites from Mars. So is there a way of, I mean, so... Is really what you're saying that we can we can look at these uh, rocks that fall to Earth and actually trace back the uh, history of our solar system and, and kind of trace how it formed and evolved over time? Yeah, we can look at, the as I said, the starting materials of the solar system, the types of physical processes that happened that led to the evolution of asteroids and similar processes would have happened on Earth as it evolved or on the Moon and on Mars and places like that. What is your own area of research? So most of my work is looking at just one particular element in um, extraterrestrial materials called xenon. So if you can envisage the periodic table, the very right-hand column are what we call noble gases, and that's things like helium, neon, argon, krypton, and xenon. And those are particularly interesting and particularly useful for tracing the, the evolution processes of the solar system. And there's several reasons for that. First of all, they're they're in all rocky materials from the solar system, but they're only there in really small amounts, which makes them quite hard to measure. But when you can measure them, they can be really useful. And um, they have lots of different isotopes. Isotopes are different forms of the same element. And different physical processes, such as radioactive decay, um, can form different isotopes or different forms of these noble gases. So by looking at their signature, we can learn about the types of processes that contributed to the solar system materials that we're familiar with today. I also uh, had read that you were involved in 
uh, analyzing samples that have been returned from sample collection missions and also the the, the Apollo uh, lunar samples. Is is that right? That's right. Yes, um, I've worked on some Apollo samples with colleagues here in Manchester and colleagues in America. We've also worked on samples from NASA's Genesis mission, which was a mission that collected the hot plasma coming off the sun called the solar wind and brought that back to Earth for analysis. So the sun makes up 99.8% of the mass of the solar system. But prior to the Genesis mission, we actually knew very little about its composition. So the Genesis mission collected this hot plasma, the solar wind, brought it back so people could analyse it in the labs on Earth and learn more about the composition. I'd be really interested to hear a bit more about the uh, Apollo samples that you've studied. Um, what have they yeah. actually revealed about, about the moon? So I mean, loads of stuff. If you look at all the research that's been done on Apollo samples, um, people have learned an awful lot since the first ones were brought back almost 50 years ago. Um, I think our understanding of how the moon formed and its its characteristics and features has completely changed from before the Apollo missions. The work I've mostly been doing has been with a colleague in America, and we've been looking at some tiny little pieces of rock called zircons, which are found in um, in the lunar soils and, and rocks that were brought back by the Apollo astronauts. And we're basically trying to determine their ages to um, understand the bombardment history of the moon. Ah, I see. So you, you can actually... Um find out how often the the moon has been hit i mean would that tell you um how how much uh, interplanetary de uh, debris for example is kind of in the solar system and, and, and help you gauge a picture of that kind of thing um i suppose it could kind of i mean you can see from looking at the moon it's covered in craters it's been hit an awful lot of times um similarly you can see lots of craters on mars they're less obvious on earth because as i mentioned earlier you know, we, the earth is still geologically active but there are craters on earth um and, but going back to the moon the there was a period called the late heavy bombardment where people think an awful lot of those craters w were were produced were formed um and what what we're trying to do with this project is look at the dates of the ages of the samples by dating them with several different um, techniques to see do the ages agree or do what a one type of age is reset by the impact so if that is the case can what can we then say about when the impacts occurred ah, i see um, and also uh, one of the, one of the kind of reasons that we've we're actually talking today is because you're going to be at uh, this year's Blue Dot Festival. I was wondering if, if, if we could talk about that for a bit. Um, given that you uh, work at the uh, University of Manchester, and of course Blue Dot Festival is organised by Jodrell Bank, is, is this something that is, is the festival something that you've kind of been uh, or, or, uh, involved in for a while, or, or or is this your your kind of first the, the first year that you're actually involved in it? No, we've been involved with um, all the Blue Dot Festivals. We even took part in a couple of the, um, what were they called, Life from Jodrell Bank events, the predecessor to Blue Dot Festival. And it's, it's a great weekend. You know, there's loads of really good talks, loads of hands-on science activities, um, loads of music on in the evening. It's a fantastic event. And what will you actually be talking about at this year's uh, festival? So, well, I'm kind of doing two things things. Um, I will be doing a talk about the types of extraterrestrial materials we have in the here on Earth that we can study. So 
um, as we've mentioned, meteorites, rocks from the moon, um, and the other return samples. And then our research group as a whole will have an activity in one of the, the science fields. So we will have samples of meteorites that people can look at and get their hands on. We will have some Apollo rocks there for people to look at and you know, fun activities related to our research in extraterrestrial materials. When you're doing these, these kind of outreach events, I mean, it, it must be often quite difficult for people to actually conceive of the fact that they're they're holding a piece of you know, of, of, of Mars or the moon or something like that? What's the general reaction that you get from, from the public at, at these kind of events? I think most people are really amazed to be holding these these rocks. Um, I think some, some of them are a bit sort of overwhelms a bit, a bit strong, but um, they can't quite believe that they're really holding a piece of the moon or Mars. Um, but yeah, most people are, are really amazed by it that that they can actually hold that. You know, it's not every day you can go home and say, oh, I held a piece of the moon today. <laughs> is it the kind of thing that, that, that people could find themselves? Is, is it easy enough to actually go out and, and look for meteorites and, and find them? Uh, yes and no. Um, meteorites can land anywhere on Earth. There's no place they're more likely to land than others. However, there are places that they're far easier to find than others. So if you happen to go out in the street today and, and see a rock on your walk home, it is probably not a meteorite. And we get a lot of people coming to us saying, I've found a meteorite, and it's not. But if you were walking through the Sahara Desert, or if you were walking um, through Antarctica, as, as you do, and you came across a black rock, the chances are that that probably is a meteorite, because it is completely different looking to the rest of the environment. Yes, I'm, I'm aware that there are plenty of uh, expeditions, including, I think, um, some uh, scientists from the University of Manchester who actually travel out to the Antarctic um, solely for the purpose of, of searching for, for meteorites. Yes, that's correct. Um, just this winter, the first British-led searching, um, first British-led trip searching for meteorites in Antarctica went, and um, they're actually looking for a type of meteorite that are predominantly made of metal, which they think are buried under the ice. So there were two parts to this year's mission. Um, first of all, they're going to use basically a big metal detector to sweep over the ice and try and find these meteorites that are buried just below the ice. So they were testing the metal detector. And I believe that team have gone up to the Arctic maybe this week again to do some further testing. And the other part of the mission, which was being led by Katie Joy, was um, kind of to go and scope out some sites that had never been looked at before to see if there were meteorites there and if they might be suitable to use with the, the metal detectors in future years. It's absolutely incredible. Um, but I think also one of the kind of things that pop into people's heads when they think of space rocks and things coming from, from outer space and, and landing on Earth is... Um, the the notion that they might pose some sort of threat to to our planet or our species and in fact uh, asteroid day is coming up on the 30th of june which is this kind of global campaign to raise awareness of the fact i mean how, how seriously do you take the the threat of of space rocks to our to our planet and our species the earth will get hit at some point again in the future it the earth's been hit before you know we know that um the the dinosaurs were really killed out by an asteroid strike you can see craters on Earth where things have hit before. So we will get hit again. It's just a case of what and when. And this might just be my personal opinion, but personally, I don't know that there's much we can do about it. So it's not 
I'm not worrying about it. <laughs> so do you Hopefully think... it won't happen anytime soon. <laughs> so do you think that kind of, uh, you know, the, the Hollywood depiction of, of, of the, the ability to, to deflect, you know, asteroids, is that kind of, is, is that a bit far-fetched, do you think? Well, I think it's things that people are looking into and it, it might be feasible, but I think the problem is that there's so many asteroids out there and we only know about a small fraction of them. We even only know about a small fraction of the ones that we would consider to be a risk to Earth. Um, so, you know, we have to actually know it's there and that it's a risk to us before we can do anything about it. Yes, indeed. <laughs> indeed. Well, um, uh, Dr. Crowther, thank you very, very much for speaking to me today. Um, and I'll look, I'll look forward to uh, your talk at Blue Dot this year. Thank you. That was Sarah Crowther. Find out more about asteroids in the June issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine. There's lots to see in the night sky this month, which you can find out all about in this month's Sky Guide. One thing you can look out for is the moon illusion, where the full moon appears to be larger when it's close to the horizon. In reality, the moon is no larger than normal. It's all an optical illusion. You can test this by holding up your fingers to measure its size and you'll see it's exactly the same size on the sky when it's high up. No one's 100% sure why we think it looks larger, but it's thought to be something to do with the moon being close to the horizon and our brain linking the two together somehow, which tricks our sense of perspective. If you want to test the theory for yourself, you can catch the full or near full moon between the 16th and 18th of June. Pick up a June copy of BBC Sky Night magazine to find out what time the moon is rising so you can catch it whilst it's still close to the horizon. So that's it from us this month. You can find out more about studying near-Earth objects in the June issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we also take a look at the image of a black hole that was revealed to the world on the 10th of April, go for a stroll around the planets ahead of Brian Cox's new BBC programme, and learn about how to get the most from your astronomy equipment. And that's not forgetting our regular sections, where we will help you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. From all of us here at BBC Sky at Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or simply head to iTunes. 